Uh, we just spent five glorious weeks with him. Um, I thought that I knew a fair amount about creation, evolution, and all of that kind of thing. I learned that I don't know hardly anything, and I still don't know all that he was talking about, uh, for sure. I'd read many of the books, though, uh, especially Behe's books. They were, they're, I like them a lot. Uh, but I came away from it with this awe of God and awe of creation. And it'll change the way that I teach some of the first two chapters of Genesis because I tried to incorporate a lot of the evolution, creation stuff in there. I'm not going to bother because if anybody has any questions on that, all of Mike's stuff are on YouTube and you can watch the different ones and there's really no question uh, that you would have to have uh, answered that couldn't be answered there. So uh, I'm going to do some of the things a little differently. We are going to go verse by verse through Genesis, but not tonight. Tonight, I'm going to ask a question. The name of the sermon is, Why Study Genesis? And the first verse, and the only real verse out of Genesis, there'll be some other things you'll see, is Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created and I'm not going to bore you with a lesson in Hebrew grammar, mainly because I don't know anything about Hebrew grammar, but we'll talk about it near the end of this teaching. I've done my homework, and I'm certain the idea here in these few words, at least in English, is that God has always existed, and matter has not always existed. So right at the opening statement, we're being told that God is eternal, and then he created out of nothing, everything. And of course, we've really seen that from what Michael did. God has always existed as a trinity, or triunity, I'll call it. And because of that trinity, God is personal and relational. And my proof text for that is contained in Jesus' words during his prayer before he went to the cross. I once read a commentator uh, who suggested that God created people, and it was a Genesis commentary, because he was lonely. I don't remember where I threw it, but uh, that was the end of that. <laughs> and as you'll see, one verse easily refutes that. In uh, the Jesus' prayer, John chapter 17, just before he goes to the cross, he's praying, and it says right at the beginning, you'll see it on the screen, after Jesus said this, it's talking about chapter 16, in the last verse in chapter 16, most of you know, well, Jesus said, in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart of overcome the world. And then in John 17, 1 to 5, it says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, and he prayed this, Father, the hour has come. Now, in our study of John's gospel, I've always talked about the fact that all the way through there are different themes in John's gospel, and one of the themes is my time has not yet come, or my hour has not yet come. And one of the reasons that I like to emphasize the theme is that it shows us that God had a specific plan. Jesus was on a schedule, and it was fulfilled perfectly. And so here it says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, my time has now come. The hour has come. Glorify your son, that's Jesus, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him, he, Jesus is praying, but he's talking about himself, 
You granted him, it's like he's saying, you granted me authority over all people that he, or Jesus is saying, I might give eternal life to all those you have given me. It's a picture of God's sovereignty in many ways. Now this, verse 3, now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, whom you have sent. In verse 4, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And then the final verse. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, and here it is, with the glory I had with you before the world began. So that's part of that triunity, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, we must study Genesis because we need to know where we came from to have purpose as human beings. We've just finished this five weeks of amazing proof that God created everything, including our original progeny, Adam, and then, of course, Eve. R.C. Sproul some time ago wrote this, if we are growing up germs... What difference can it possibly make whether we're black germs or white germs, whether we're free germs or enslaved germs? Who cares? I think that puts it just right. Take away our origins and God's purposes in our lives and eventually, you take that away, eventually chaos intrudes. Making a purposeful life impossible. I have mentioned it often, but today worldwide, we have forgotten God. That became a famous statement by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote the Gulag Archipelago, which everybody should read that book. And he was, he was talking about his country, Russia. Actually, he was being honored with an honorary Doctor of Laws degree at Harvard University, uh, and the year was 1978, well over 40 years ago, and his acceptance address, he stated, quote, over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all of this has happened. So I looked up this whole speech this week and was struck by a commentary on the speech that reads this way. The key theme of the speech was a critique of Western culture. This is way over 40 years ago, and its moral decline. He discussed the dangers of materialism, secularism, and the loss of spiritual and moral values in society. He also emphasized the importance of a moral and spiritual foundation in addressing the challenges of the modern world. That was 1978. And today, God has been largely removed from the thinking of the rulers of most nations. And if you watch the news any day, the evidence of lack of wisdom and the use of power and control over populations is growing fast. Now, this makes me sad, but not hopeless. Genesis gives us purpose and hope by revealing that we were created in God's image, the Imagudeo. God truly does have a plan and purpose for our lives. We are not victims of random evolution. 
God made us to live for him and to love him and to love others and to experience joy and peace and all the fruit of the Spirit, regardless of the temporal circumstances of our lives. We will see from the Genesis story exactly what happens when society moves away from God's purposes and gives in to the I live only for me culture that we find ourselves in today. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on Genesis says, a believing understanding of the book of Genesis is therefore a prerequisite to an understanding of God and his meaning for mankind. Now, I've often recommended the book by Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. And uh, my goal is that everybody that comes to this church eventually will read that book. The key to the book, my original mentor uh, made me and the others he was mentoring read the book, and then he asked us, in one sentence, tell us what the book's about. Well, of course, he hoped that we would have recognized it in the very opening part of the book, because this is the sentence. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So Genesis is the book of beginnings. It is in Genesis that we discover God's overall purpose in creation. God's purpose for us human beings. It is in Genesis that we discover we are made in God's image and that God loves us. It is in Genesis that we learn about marriage and male and female relationships and sexual reproduction and pleasure and, of course, the family. It is in Genesis that we discover our need to obey God because he has given us specific instructions on how to live, instructions always for our good. It is in Genesis that we discover the purpose of the creation of the universe and this earth we walk on and actually fly around. It is in Genesis that we learn of God's love for us in Jesus Christ and our freedom to receive or reject God's offer of salvation. It is in Genesis that we learn of the source of evil in the world and what God decided to do about it. It is in Genesis that we discover our need for salvation and the method God determined for salvation. Now, we'll study all that in detail as we proceed verse by verse through Genesis, but before the fall of Genesis chapter 3, we had, or at least Adam and Eve had, true free choice. Adam talked with God daily. But that was ruined when Eve believed Satan's lies and Adam wimped out and did not protect his wife. That is when sin entered the world. Now our freedom is limited to just our own lives as we struggle with our sin nature. We can do anything we choose except save ourselves for eternity. So God intervened. In Genesis, we see that Adam and Eve were able to come before God again when the blood of an animal was shed to cover their shame. This is developed all through the Hebrew Scriptures until we finally meet Jesus who shed his blood on the cross for our sins. And that's one of the reasons we're meeting tonight while we remember that. Now our shame, now, our, today our shame is covered by his blood. That's the death of Jesus, the cross, so we can again come before God and walk with him in our lives and live the way God originally designed for us to live. We'll see all of that in Genesis chapter 3. Now, this week on The Briefing by Albert Moeller, I listen to it every morning. I recommend it. You can Google it and find it. <clears throat> and uh, uh, it, 
he gives a commentary on what's happening in the world every day from a Christian worldview. And uh, this week, he was answering questions, last Friday, actually. He's answering a question from a grandmother who was helping teach her grandchildren who were homeschooled. And she asked Dr. Moeller to help in answering a question these young children asked her. And she said, I, I really don't know how to answer it for them, for sure. And the question was, how were those in the Old Testament saved if Jesus had not come yet? And so Moeller did a very thorough answer. He first went to Hebrews 11 uh, and talked about faith to demonstrate that faith in God was the answer to the question. But he also turned to Genesis chapter 12, where we learn about Abram becoming Abraham and that salvation was by faith in God, who Abraham, along with all of God's people, had to trust in to be saved. The New Testament makes it clear that the Old Testament saints trusted in the promise of a coming Savior by faith before Jesus came and fulfilled those promises, ratifying the new covenant, which we are all included in because Jesus rose from the dead. Genesis answers the question the grandchildren ask their grandmother, starting with the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, one of the most important chapters in the Hebrew Scriptures that we will study. We learn that Abraham was saved by faith, the same as we are today. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 reads, Abram believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, credited it, his belief, to him as righteousness. He was saved by faith. In Romans chapter 4, using several verses, Paul writes this, in Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 1, or Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was a credit to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And so it's, it was the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's always been by faith. For us, it's by faith directly in Jesus. We repent of our sins, and we agree that we're going to obey God, and the Holy Spirit immediately comes into our lives, and we're now able to live the way God wants us to live. Oh, we need to be discipled. We need to grow. We need to read the Bible, all of those things, too, uh, along with it. But now we can live the way we're supposed to live. Now, one thing I like about Genesis is the picture of God seeking out those who have fallen. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they hid from God, which is humorous if you think about it. But the picture of God we have is of him seeking them out and showing them how they could be saved. Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? I mean, I can't help but smile. I mean, God knew where he was. <laughs> where are you? 
You see, Abraham himself, he did not seek after God. No, no. God came to Abraham and not only offered salvation, but promised salvation to the whole world through Abraham's obedience of faith. Amazing. That is how the nation of Israel came to be. And as we trace history through Genesis, we see God choosing Jacob, whose name becomes Israel. And through Israel, Jesus emerges as the Savior of the world. My all-time favorite Genesis story is the life of Joseph, which is an exegesis of the statement in Romans chapter 8 that we all have memorized. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Joseph tells his brothers who tried to murder him that they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The opening chapters of Genesis demonstrate God's detailed, loving, good plan for the creation. And for we whom he created. And through Genesis, we see that God had already arranged in detail for the salvation that is offered to the whole world because of God's loving, very good creation. It is in Genesis that we learn of the judgment of God, notably the story of Noah. This story is used in the New Testament to point forward to the final judgment. The apostle Peter uses the story uh, to talk about the judgment that will come when Jesus returns. We find it in 2 Peter chapter 3. I've uh, put it up on the screen in uh, the New Living Translation, and it reads this way. This is Peter the Apostle's writing. This is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. So your apostles, he's talking about himself and the other apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, that's the days we're in now, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? Where is he? <laughs> From before the times of our ancestors Everything has remained the same since the world was first created. That's Genesis. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. So there is a judgment coming. And we should be so concerned about that and about uh, the people that we know that don't know Jesus that we'll do everything we can, not just to live for Jesus, but to tell them about how they can be saved. So finally, the image of God we discover in Genesis tells us that we are people of worth, creatures of value. I think it was Boyce who wrote this. Fallen, yes, sinners, yes, but redeemable by God through the power and grace displayed in Jesus Christ. So back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Howard Hendricks. It's not too difficult to be biblical if you don't care about being relevant. Let me read it again. It is not too difficult to be biblical if you don't care about being relevant. And it's not difficult to be relevant if you don't care about being biblical. But if you want to be both biblical and relevant in your teaching, it is a very difficult task indeed. So some practical, important information about Genesis. First, Genesis was written by God. Oh, not just Genesis, but Genesis was written by God. Uh, one of the very, very first memory assignments was 2 Timothy chapter 3. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, it reads this way, all Scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God. God-breathed or inspired by God. And is useful for teaching, I'm doing that right now, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, the man or woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, when Paul wrote that to Timothy, the New Testament hadn't been completed yet. And so he was talking about a lot of things that others wrote, but he, and, and even Peter said that, that Paul was writing Scripture. Nevertheless, uh, when he says all Scripture, he's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. He's talking about the book of Genesis. In 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, Peter says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so all that the prophets wrote that we can study in the, in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, and, and even all of the things that we now read in the canon of Scripture in the New Testament, uh, they all come from the Holy Spirit, and it's not, they weren't dictated. That's not the idea, but uh, the, the words were guided by God according to the personality of the individuals so they could write to us the truth that God wanted us to know. Now, throughout Genesis, we will see the words, God said. And that should comfort us to know that what we are reading is absolutely true. Now, there are some who say the book of Genesis is a theological myth or a fable to teach us about the beginnings. But if Adam and Eve were not real people, and if the flood did not happen, but was just some localized event, then the whole teaching in the New Testament by both Jesus and Paul especially would be unnecessary and wrong. Paul said that sin came through one man by the name of Adam. And Jesus also made it clear that he believed Adam was a real person, not a mythical character. Actually, in Mark chapter 13, verse 19, these are the words of Jesus, and he's talking about the end times and the, uh, the time during the tribulation period. And he says, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world. He believed Genesis was from God. And until now, and never to be equaled again. And in Matthew 19, 
some Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus with their trick questions. But Jesus answered them with two quotes from Genesis proving Adam and Eve were created by God. They were actually talking about divorce and remarriage, but uh, that's not the point that we're looking at tonight. In Matthew 19.4, he was answering these biblical scholars who thought they could trap him. And he starts out by saying to them, haven't you read? In other words, I really think this is a little bit humorous. He's saying, haven't you guys ever read the Bible? I mean, they memorized the Torah for sure and most of the important parts of the Bible. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. It's right out of the book of Genesis. They would have recognized it right away. And then there are some that say Genesis, especially the first two chapters of Genesis, is just inspired poetry. It actually amazes me how many, quote, evangelical commentaries I've read that actually say, well, it's just all poetry and we shouldn't take it too literal and all of that. And, and uh, no, no. <laughs> poetry can be literal. Apocalyptic literature, and especially in the Revelation, is sign literature, but it's, the signs are literal. They're really taken literally, the meaning of the signs. So it's true that there is poetry in the Bible. The prophets often use poetic images to convey, convey their true messages. Again, like I mentioned with the Revelation, as you read through that, I'm teaching that in our home fellowship right now again, and uh, uh, there's some great imagery but the meaning of the imagery is a literal meaning. That's what it really means. And people in that, people that knew apocalyptic literature knew that. Uh, the Psalms are often written in poetic imagery so that they can be used for singing and also be easily memorized. Some of them are just the alphabet uh, of the Hebrew alphabet. And each one of the lines of the Psalm uh, start with the first letter of that Hebrew alphabet and it makes it easier to remember them if you knew Hebrew. I wish I did. But the Psalms were written in poetic imagery for those reasons. But even in the Psalms, we see the reality of Genesis. Psalm 136 is a good example. It's 25 verses long. I won't use that many verses. But here's how it reads. Psalm 136, verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks for the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. His love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens. Now help me now. You ready? His love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. His love endures forever. Who made the great lights. His love endures forever. The sun to govern the day. His love endures forever. The moon and the stars to govern the night. His love endures forever. Uh, Genesis is really important. You know, some people will say, and I agree, that pretty well all of the Christian doctrines are tied up in the first 11 <coughs> uh, chapters of Genesis. And I agree with that. But actually, the book of Genesis as a whole is an absolute essential if we're going to understand the rest of the Bible. Uh, you have to know the book of Genesis, and I hope all of you have read it many times. So yes, there's poetry, but it 
pictures, with Psalm 136 at least, the creation as a fact, as a fact. It really did happen. Now, there are some who say that Genesis was just, was just copied from several myths available at the time, such as the Gilgamesh epic and the Babylonian epic of creation. Well, all I can say is that if you read these, they're readily available online. You'll be asked to believe that a story of two monsters represented as dragons birthed many gods who ended up battling with two dragon-like monsters, one called Tiamat, who was slain, and then her body is split in two with the upper half forming heaven and the lower half forming earth. So that's how it all started. <laughs> that's almost as silly as what Michael showed us with some modern uh, brilliant uh, men of science uh, believe about the, how the earth came and how we came, where we came from and all that. No, Genesis was written in very simple, straightforward language, Hebrew, so anyone could understand what the meaning was. Now, back to the beginning for a simple lesson in language, but I'll, I'll make it super simple. Uh, in the beginning, God. In the Hebrew, it's just two words, just two words. Now, I don't use the Living Bible very much, but I do like, it's fun to read. It's, it's not a, the Living Bible is a paraphrase. But it starts off, and so does some, some other Bibles that aren't paraphrases, saying, when God began creating the heavens and the earth. Now, see if, I hope I get this so that you understand it. God created out of nothing. He did not begin to create. He created. And, and the word for create it refers to the production of new things from nothing. This is important to, to just get a grasp of God because the majesty of God, the amazing God who we serve, who has revealed himself to us. We all know that everything has a cause, and things don't just happen. But God is the uncaused cause. God has always existed. We cannot know God because of his eternal existence. There's no way we could know God. And I believe this is why many scientists and philosophers reject the idea of God. They cannot accept that there is anything they could not figure out either by the power of their minds or by the scientific method of observation and testing. But God has always existed, and the world hasn't. If God created everything without exception, that means I'm a created being, and I can only do or respond or understand in accordance with how God made me. Now, there are many implications to this truth. One is, God is not accountable to me. God, why are you doing this? God doesn't owe me any kind of an explanation for anything. So if my creator does not create in me the ability to know him and respond to him, if he doesn't choose to communicate to me, then I would never know him. But he has chosen to do so. 
And he has even given me the ability to reject him, amazingly enough. I'm not talking about, uh, I never want anybody to think this, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. If you're saved, you're going to go to heaven. Uh, God's discipline will make sure of that. But we can still, in our, as a Christian, I've done it, and I've, I've said uh, my favorite story, I haven't told it for a long time, so if some of you, most of you won't remember it anyhow. I was in an office building, and I was a stockbroker in London, Ontario, and I was really having some struggles, and, and, um, and I was at nine, the, my office was on the ninth floor, and I got on the elevator, and I was just, uh, in my mind, there, I wasn't saying anything out loud, I was just saying in my mind, God, I've had enough, I, I don't want it, I don't want I don't want to do this anymore. Just, you're not helping me. I just don't want anything to do with this. I walked out of the elevator, and I walked to the uh, street outside, and the traffic was going. I'm looking at the traffic, and I found myself saying, how dumb can somebody be? God, I do want you. And I'd had a friend just recently uh, say that... uh, you know, if you just rejected God, he believed in a theology where if you just said, I don't, I don't want to be saved anymore, you wouldn't be saved. And I thought this, and it really, maybe you won't understand it, I don't know, but it really helped me. I realized if I had walked out of here in anger after saying, after saying that, God, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. I'd said that in the elevator. And I got hit with a car and got run over, I'd still be in heaven. The love of God is so amazing. So amazing. He's given us what I call a terrible freedom. We don't have... The, we, we do have the freedom of attitude. Uh, we have the freedom to say some pretty dumb things sometimes. But all of that should cause us to worship our Creator. But in many cases, it has caused us to reject our Creator in favor of created things, pension funds. and The worst thing that we trust Him ourselves. Do you know God does not need us? And no, he did not create us because he was lonely. God is completely self-sufficient. We are not. God does not need us, but, James Montgomery voice again, The joy of coming to know him is in learning that he nevertheless stoops to work in and through his children. And Tozer, among all created beings, not one dare trust in itself. God alone trusted himself. All other beings must trust in him. Unbelief is actually perverted faith, for it puts its trust not in the living God, but in dying men. What a statement. Therefore, refusing to trust God is saying that either we or some other person or thing is more trustworthy than God who created that person and the material that thing consists of. In Exodus 3, Moses approaches a burning bush that is not consumed by the fire. God speaks to Moses about delivering the Israelites from captivity in Egypt to go and talk to Pharaoh and let my people go and all of that story. At one point, Moses finally asked God, who should I say sent me? What will I go to these people and what am I going to say? And God says, tell them I am sent you. 
Remember John's gospel? I said there were different themes. We have I am all the way through it. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door, and I'm the good shepherd. And when he used the phrase I am, when there were biblical scholars near him of that day, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying because Jesus was saying he, he was deity. And he was using that to, to show the reality of it. And those people all knew about the Exodus story really well. Abraham knew God as the eternal God. In Genesis 21:33, it reads, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. Or Moses, he wrote Psalm 90, first two verses, Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You see, God is unchangeable. He has revealed his attributes to us. We never have to worry that his love will end or he will get tired of us. He will always love us for forever. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. We can believe that, not because the catechism says so, but because the Bible says so. <laughs> when I was in seminary, I took a course in neo-Orthodox theology. That doesn't mean anything. Well, it does to two or three people around here, but I was really fascinated by Karl Barth's writing. Karl uh, Barth read something called the Church Dogmatics. None of you here, have, well, some of you, there's a couple of you probably heard about the Church Dogmatics. Uh, it was a really big thing when I was in seminary to meet somebody who had read all of Karl Barth's writing. I mean, it would take me all the rest of my life. I read a lot of it, though, because I had to write papers on it and what he believed about the Trinity and all kinds of stuff. He was clearly, he not only wrote more actual on-paper theology than anybody uh, in history, but he was clearly a brilliant man. And one time he was in Chicago, and he was at a conference, and there was a question and answer session, and someone asked Karl Barth, uh, what is the most profound thought you ever had? Now, everybody would be on the edge of their seat. And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. So I believe that God used Moses to write Genesis Jesus believed Moses wrote, wrote Genesis too, and that really is good enough for me. <laughs> Genesis is written to the people of Israel, but we are also God's people, so it is written for us to understand God's ways and live godly lives of faith. It has become a thing these days, unfortunately, to ignore the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, to be decoupled from them. And I don't need to use the pastor's name, well-known, that has made that very, very clear. 
I'd listen to his sermons just to be sure. I didn't just believe somebody else told me. And he says, we don't need to just confuse his people to teach the Old Testament. There's no reason for it at all. We just teach the New Testament. That's all that we need. And he has as an audience, one of the biggest audiences in Christendom. And it's so sad to see that. Uh, without a growing understanding of the Old Testament, a person's Christian life will have significant holes in it. We learn more about God's character and our responsibility in following God from the Hebrew Scriptures and from any other source. The Bible will never be relevant to us unless we take the time to understand the who and why and where and what of the original hearers. We must know why the Scripture was written in the first place to know if it is really relevant for us. And Genesis will help us with that in the months ahead. So we need to now take some time to do communion. Let me pray first. Uh, Father, I just thank you so much for Genesis as a book, Genesis 3, as I look at the fall and all that happened. And then I look at Jesus, and I see the fulfillment of him being on this earth as Savior by reading the book of Genesis. That is so amazing, Father, that you had worked all that out. I can't pretend to understand all of the details uh, of why you did that and why you didn't just wipe us all out and start over again. Well, you did once, but you're not going to do that again. I thank you for that. And then, Father, I... Um, Thank you that Jesus came to this earth, that he is God, that he came because you loved every single person in the world, and you gave many and are still giving many to salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the cross becomes a wonderful symbol. It's a horrible picture, but it's a wonderful symbol of salvation and freedom from sin. And as we uh, take communion tonight, Father, together, uh, I just thank you for the picture it is of the whole gospel, the good news about Jesus. And I ask that you would help us not to just take it for granted. Pretty well all of us here have done this many times. And it's so easy, Father, for habit to become totally meaningless. So by your Holy Spirit, I ask you to make this very, very meaningful so that we understand exactly what we're doing and why. We just recently studied together on Sunday mornings the chapter 11 of, of 1 Corinthians, and we see all the mistakes that were made about communion, but we also see that no matter what we've done this week, no matter how bad we've been or what our thought life has been like or any of that, especially if we've been great sinners this week as Christians, this is the time to come to the communion table to be in awe of what God has done to confess our sins and to ask forgiveness because he promises in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he's talking to Christians, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I pray, Father, that we take communion, as we take communion together, we realize the responsibility that that is for us to be filled with your spirit, controlled by your Holy Spirit, to use the gifting, the spiritual gifting you've given all of us in the body of Christ and to reach out to everyone in the world that we can in our worlds to be able to tell them about the good news about Jesus. 
And so, Father, uh, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for Genesis. I look forward to teaching every verse of it again. And I pray that you will continue to grow our church in maturity as we learn more and more. In Jesus' name.